Welcome to the Vitality Health Show, where we inform you about the latest advancements in alternative health care and the best health and wellness solutions to benefit your body, mind, and spirit. Now, here's your host, Stephanie Parrish. Good morning, friends, and welcome to the Vitality Health Show. I am your host, Stephanie Parrish, the voice of hope and healing. And thank you for joining us. First, I want to thank our sponsor, the Mindful Lab, for making this show possible. And as a reminder, if you have any questions or suggestions or comments, please email me at contact at myvitalityhealthsolutions.com. We'd love to hear from you. We have an amazing show today. Our guest is Dr. Michael Collins, who was stricken with polio as a child and became paralyzed. But Michael is a fighter, and his mother's very, very skillfully nursed him back to health over a course of several years. Michael went on to medical school and became a heart surgeon, later going to work for the LDS Hospital in Salt Lake City, Utah. There he witnessed and many, many successes and miracles. Dr. Collins is here with us today to share his amazing story and to explain what it was like as a very devout Catholic to work at an LDS hospital with the Apostle of the Church. So stay tuned. We are so excited to have him here. So with further ado, please welcome Dr. Michael Collins to the Vitality Health Show. Welcome, Dr. Michael. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you very much, Stephanie. It's, a, uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be here. Oh, thank you. When we got to meet you a few months ago, and we just ha- sat there and had this amazing conversation, I could listen to you all night. It, there was a lot of things going on, and it's like, I just want to just listen to everything that he has to say. And and we got to look and go into your office with all your incredible pictures of everything all over your walls, and, and you're standing there with prophets of the church, and you're standing with very, very wonderful, devout Catholics and leaders, and I know there's a lot of that in your family, and you're very religious, and you believe in Christ, and, and just the things that have brought you through to this point where you're still making huge influence on people, but what impressed me so much was your journey, your journey as a child and what you went through. And this show is all about hope and healing. And to have you on here to let people know what you went through as a child, how you grow up, grew up, the things that you suffered with, and yet you continually had hope and you continually pushed through. And you not only became healthy and strong, you have helped many, many people, probably saved many, many lives as well in your in your choice of vocations that you're doing. So without further ado, I want you to start with your very, very young story because that's kind of where your life really was molded and took, took shape and with your mother and the different people that were part of your life. So I'm going to turn the time over to you to start at that story and tell us a little bit about what happened there. Before we start, I just want to comment on your introduction a bit, a little story here. On my wall immediately to my right here, I have a papal blessing on our household from Pope John the 23rd. And it's right next to my picture of me with Dr. Russell Nelson when he trained me when he was a heart surgeon. Uh, when some of our neighbors or even sometimes when people from the ward come by and they see these two things together, they kind of get this funny look on their face. Exactly. <laughs> like, what's going on here? Um, but I, I, I feel that that is a great example of uh, ecumenical coming together, so to speak, is the having those together. 
And, so, and I must admit, you're walking into your home has such an incredible feeling when you go in there. And of course, we love Shirley Ann, your beautiful wife, and just the spirit that's in your home. You know, just know it is such a blessed place. Oh, thank and you. thank you for sharing that with us, with Ken and I. We came over there a couple times, and we were in awe with all the things that were on your walls. Well, so thanks. <laughs> thanks. It's just beautiful. So thank you for sharing that with us. Let me start off by uh, just giving some uh, family background, or what I call the 24th Street, sorry, because <laughs> I grew up in San Francisco on 24th Street, which is one of the main thoroughfares in the uh, Mission District in Noe Valley. Uh, my mother was uh, Ursula Agnes uh, Collins, um, daughter of an immigrant Polish family uh, in San Francisco. And my dad was Robert Elliot Collins, who was from a dedicated Irish Catholic family, uh, also uh, from San Francisco. Important thing here is <clears throat> my dad was a doctor wannabe. Ah. At this time, uh, because he had a family, because of World War II, uh, uh, he uh, could not go into the military, obviously, but he was the uh, uh, local civil defense fireman. Um, he was uh, uh, a constant reader of medical textbooks. I understand uh, that he had a better medical library than most physicians. He just loved reading medicines. By trade, he was a baker, and that's a trait in our family. Uh, as a teenager and when I was in college, I used to, I used to make a mean tea cake for social <laughs> events, and uh, I think that comes directly from him. Uh, we're not from an academic family at all. There's nobody in the family who ever went into medicine. Um, but we all had uh, other, uh, other goals to attain. Um, I always knew that I wanted to be a physician. I, I can't remember wanting to be anything else except for when my neighbor moved in and he was a member of the California Highway Patrol and I saw his neat uh, police car. I thought, well, maybe I'd want to do this. But still, uh, being a physician uh, won out. Um, unfortunately, my dad got sick when I was about six months old. Mm. And uh, he had a surgery when I was 11 months and subsequently died of uh, probably a cancer of some sort when I was 11 months old. This left my mom with uh, three three sons that uh, she had to raise uh, and uh, myself, she had to put me through my childhood years. Um, and she was considered to be uh, uh, infirmed also. She had a congenital hearing problem, which, uh, you know, which kind of barred her from working any significant jobs that she had, uh, that she was offered. Um, so this essentially made us a single parent welfare family. Uh, my two older brothers, uh, my oldest brother went into shipping as soon as he got out of high school uh, with a steamship company in San Francisco because we uh, needed some sort of income. My uh, other brother, uh, Tom, went uh, and got his PhD in electrical engineering and started to work in the Silicon Valley. Um, uh, and he still does that. Uh, mom really was a believer. She was a, a, 
dedicated Christian, a devout Catholic. Um, she uh, was one of the pillars of the parish. Um, she had great devotion to Mary, the mother of Christ, uh, especially in the devotional form of uh, Our Lady of Perpetual Help. Those of you who are Catholic out there uh, will, will uh, recognize that devotion. So we uh, went along and did okay. We were a great family. We we're a loving family. We all pitched in and, and helped each other. Uh, that's where I learned to cook and I learned to iron, uh, learned how to wash because uh, we all had to do that. Otherwise, right. uh, it just wouldn't get done. When I was about four and a half years old, something happened in the United States. We were hit with a, another pandemic, and that was a pandemic of poliomyelitis. At that time, I was attending a government-funded nursery school in the neighborhood, uh, and there were a lot of small kids there. And I'm telling you, uh, they were dropping like flies out of the school with the polio epidemic. My neighborhood alone, within the, the four block area of uh, my neighborhood and parish, we lost a lot of people and a lot of kids became crippled with this disease process. Wow. So one morning I remember, and I remember this quite vividly, uh, I got up and got out of bed. I fell flat on my face, mm. just right on the floor. And I remember my mother came in, so what's what's going on? And I, I blamed my colleagues at the nursery school. I said, you know, you know, Johnny uh, threw a rock and hit me in the leg yesterday, and, oh. and now I can't walk. And, of course, that wasn't true. And uh, I also was having trouble breathing. And oh. mom said I was a little, little blue around the gills. Mm -hmm. So those are the days when uh, uh, pediatricians made house calls. And uh, my pediatrician, God bless him, Dr. O'Gara, uh, uh, youngest, uh, youngest, uh, younger type uh, pediatrician, mm -hmm. just happened to be in the neighborhood. And she called the office and they called him the next time he checked in. You know, we had no cell phones or anything right. at that time. He had to wait for the doctor to call him. And he came right over and I will never forget the look on his face when he walked into my bedroom. I'm on the floor. And the look on his face was one of both fright and, and fear. Wow. He uh, was very calm. He turned to my mom, and I remember this. He said, please get me a warm blanket. And he got a blanket. He wrapped me up, carried me down to his car, put me in the car, and took me right down to San Francisco, Francisco General Hospital, where they had, that's where they were taking care of all of the polio patients. Wow. So um, at this time, I, I couldn't walk. I, I really couldn't, could hardly move any part of my body. I was having trouble breathing. They put me in the most modern device they had at that time, and that was an oxygen tent, which we now know is very inefficient in delivering right. any oxygen content. That didn't help too much. So then came the iron lung. Uh, this big, ugly, tube-like machine. But once I was in it and it started, I could feel myself breathing better, was more comfortable. Yeah. And exactly how long I was in the iron lung, I can't remember. Cause I, I, I think I was kind of in and out of consciousness or awareness, let me put it that way, uh, at this time. Um, eventually, though, uh, my breathing got better. And I was able to be uh, transferred uh, 
to a crib. And while this is going on at the hospital, uh, on the home front, uh, the guys were out there nailing this big orange quarantine sign uh, to my house, to the front door. Uh, nobody could come in. Nobody could go out. Uh, if we w needed groceries, the groceries got left on our doorstep, and the kid rang the doorbell and then ran like crazy because uh, wow. he didn't want to be uh, in a, a polio household. Um, you know, mom visited me every day. There was a streetcar, the 11 Hoffman streetcar that came right by our house. It went down 24th Street and stopped right in front of San Francisco General Hospital wow. um, where she could get off. And because she obviously, you know, we didn't have a car on welfare. She didn't drive. Right. But, but why she would do that, she had this little device that she could secret away in her hand. And it was her, her mini rosary. And every streetcar ride, she would say a rosemary for my recovery. And when she wasn't saying a rosary and she was home, she was over lighting candles at church, uh, again, praying for my recovery. Great devotion. Um, I'm sure she had a great relationship with the uh, Blessed Mother and with our Lord because uh, she was always there. So... Wow. When I finally was able uh, to leave the iron lung and they transferred me, I remember, to a crib because they didn't want you rolling out of bed, mm -hmm. which you couldn't really control your movements, couldn't hang on. The nurses started to treat her um, uh, like a fellow nurse. They taught her how to take care of me and the physical therapist would teach her how to do the physical therapy. The only treatment we had at this time was called the Sister Kenny treatment, named after Sister Elizabeth Kenny, who was a nurse in the British healthcare system. Um, in, the, in that healthcare system, the head nurse uh, or nurses of note were, had the title of sister. It's not a religious title, it's actually a medical title. So oh. Sister Kenny devoted her life to taking care of polio patients. And she started her life and career off in Australia, which in the early 1900s had the same problems polio as we had in San Francisco in uh, the 50s. She uh, devised a technique of, uh, uh, she used to tear old sheets in, in uh, long uh, um, shards mm -hmm. and soak them in boiling hot water and then apply them to patients where they are having the muscle spasms and pains associated with the polio. Oh. Uh, and then she divided a physical therapy technique of uh, stretching uh, uh, tendons and uh, strengthening muscles, the stretching being so that you didn't uh, um, uh, develop a club foot and the strengthening so that you could get up and walk and, and do things. So, she was a very uh, neat lady. Uh, my mother started to learn those techniques. Uh, Sister Kenny was uh, so renowned in her field that uh, later on, and I believe in the later 30s or so, she was uh, brought over to Rochester, Minnesota by the Mayo Brothers mm. to the Mayo Clinic. Wow. And they just brought her over to have her lecture on what she had done and her results. And once they heard that, and once they saw her work, they gave her a clinic 
at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and she essentially yeah. had her own practice of post-polio patients uh, to deal with. Wow. Um, so I, uh, I was brought into that system. What, what would happen is uh, twice a day, uh, the attendants would come in and they would be pushing this large cauldron of hot water. Um, and in that was a, it was, it's about a 10 by 10 uh, felt pads. And they would reach in with these tongs because the water was so hot, they didn't want to burn their hands. And they would pull them out and then put them all over your body oh, and, then and then cover them with a, a rubber dam to keep the oh. heat in. And, uh, you know, normally uh, you, could, you could tolerate things, but occasionally the water was a bit hot. And, yeah. you're, par and you're paralyzed. You can't do anything about it. So oh. you just have to sit there and you have to suck it up. Oh, I couldn't even imagine. If they can't touch it, I know. it's all over your body. I know. And uh, seeing that I was still, you know, in the four-year-old, uh, four-and-a-half-year-old age group, um, uh, and all of the major centers in the brain are maybe still not developed yet. Part of the post-polio syndrome is cold intolerance. And I, oh. my own editorial statement here is, I think that the hot packs messed up the temperature regulating mechanisms of the body, which in a four-year-old aren't really set yet. Right. And uh, to this day, I can walk into a room that is uh, uh, warm, uh, the fireplace going, I'll still put on a, a jacket uh, wow. because I perceive it as cold. Uh, uh, and when, you, uh, when you're covered with all those hot rags. <laughs> so before you go on, though, I want to ask you a question that keeps coming to my mind. Uh, and I think our listeners want to hear this. You were four and a half years old. Were you just terrified? I mean, I'm sitting there thinking of what my children when they were that age and what me as a mother yeah. would have experienced going through this? I wasn't as terrified as they were. I, I, yeah. was, I was more wondering. I remember, uh -huh. you know, why are my hands blue? I, you know, at first I thought, this is really neat. I can't wait to show my friends. I have blue <laughs> hands, you know. Uh, but then I would wonder, why can't I walk? I don't understand this. And, of course, nobody's going to sit down with a four-and-a-half, five-year-old and, right. and describe uh, virology with them or why you can't walk or describe what a, a virus does. We didn't have the, t the knowledge of, uh, uh, you know, DNA of MRNA and all those other things that we do today. Mm. So it was more wonderment. And, and I'll describe later on how that wonderment just turned into part of my recovery. Mm -hmm. um, few stories from the hospitalization that uh, I remember quite vividly and actually like it was, you know, within the recent time, the first one I call the, the hot chocolate story. <laughs> now, in the early afternoon, uh, a gentleman would appear in our pediatric polio ward, and he was a tall, lanky individual. He had uh, a normal haircut, but it was a little starting to turn gray in spots, had on a hospital mask, which was ill-fitting, and this, this ragged hospital ground, gown. He had gloves on because he didn't want to catch the polio, but he was pushing in this big vat of hot chocolate. 
and he gave all the kids his their afternoon dose of hot chocolate and if they needed help with a straw or something he'd hold it to their mouth and I, I used to look at him and this is one of my wonderments um, right. used to look at him and every day he'd come in and by the time he left he was crying oh. and I used wow. to say why is this man crying I don't understand that of course he had seen a lot more um, and he's seen he saw a lot more of what is described in my next little story and I described that story is where did Johnny go I would wake up in the morning and you'd be looking around and stuff and you notice the bed across from you was empty that crib was empty and I'd ask the nurse I said gee where where's Johnny and she said well we had to take him to another part of the hospital I said, oh, well, when's he coming back? And she would just say, he isn't. Oh, how terrifying for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heartbreaking. The, the soiled diapers story. Mm -hmm. The nurse is working hard all day. Um, if you, there's no way you could go to the bathroom. You were paralyzed. Couldn't walk. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so everybody was in diapers. And at the end of the shift, uh, I remember one nurse telling me, oh, you soiled your diapers. I just have, I'm on my way home. And she told uh -huh. me, I guess half tongue in cheek, if you soil your diapers one more time, I'm going to put you back into that iron lung. And that just, and that just scared the heck out of me. <laughs> and, and that fear is still here. Wow. Because I have one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Alan Morris, when he was uh, practicing pulmonologist at Elias Hospital, mm -hmm. uh, he would treat people with respiratory failure with a contemporary version of the iron lung. Mm -hmm. And if he thought we needed a surgical consult, he'd ask me to see the patient. Well, I'd walk into the room not knowing that this guy is in an, in an iron lung. And once I saw the iron lung, well, my pulse rate would start to go up appreciably mm -hmm. and he'd break out in a cold sweat. And that patient would get a, a very quick consult and old Dr. Morris would be outside the room laughing because he knew exactly oh. <laughs> what he had done. Little uh, you know, that's what you lived through, right? That's right. <laughs> uh, my last little vignette was uh, the day I walked. Um, and this is some weeks after this whole process uh, was ongoing. And, and this is another wonderment I had. I said, mm -hmm. I remember asking myself, why can't I walk? Well, one day I said, you know, I can walk. And I, I uh, pulled myself up on the bars of the crib. And that's the first time I stood up in months. Nice. And I just stood up there and I was so proud of myself and <laughs> holding on to things. And the doctors came in and took one look at me and they immediately ran out of the room, called my mother and said, you got to come down here right away. Well, she thought I had died. Oh, jeez. And so she's crying all the way down on the streetcar, down to the hospital, saying her rosaries, planning my funeral. And she gets into the hospital, and I, here I am standing up in the crib saying, uh, hi, Mom, look, I can walk. You know? uh, and it's, uh, I'm sure it's uh, uh, you know divine intervention and... The fact that the good Lord gave Sister Kenny the, the grace of knowledge to advance in this field that 
culminated and had a positive uh, benefit uh, on my oh health. Oh, my goodness. Michael, we're going to get ready to take our first break. Okay. Uh, I, I could talk to you for hours. Like I said, we spent <laughs> we spent some time at his home with him and his wife, and we I just could listen, listen, listen. I didn't want to leave. It was fascinating. So we're going to take our first break. Okay. We'll be back in just a few minutes. I want to pick it up from there where you went from there and more into your medical. And we right. could talk about uh, – and I, I just have such great respect for your mother. Oh. <laughs> being, being a mother of six and, you know, going through the things that we went through with kids growing up, but I couldn't even imagine. Your mother is a saint, absolutely a saint. And the story that you'll tell, I'm sure, catching everybody up on what happened after that. Yeah. Um, because she is a saint. And, you know, you, ha- you have had the opportunity to, because of your experience, I think a lot, to be able to save people's lives and help people change their lives. So everything happens for a reason. It's not mm-hmm. the best thing to go through, but everything happens for a reason. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Do not leave. Make sure you're sharing this with everybody so they can hear this amazing man, Dr. Michael Collins, and what his story is. We'll be back here in just a couple of minutes. Stay tuned. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Learn more about the products and equipment discussed by Stephanie and her guests on the show by visiting MyVitalityHealthSolutions.com. We've done the research for you and selected proven, high-quality brands at competitive prices from companies you can trust. Drugs and surgery are not your only options. Discover the exciting alternative therapies and health and wellness products that are helping people to reclaim their health and enjoy a higher quality of life. That's MyVitalityHealthSolutions.com. Many of us are finding ourselves distracted by what's going on in the world around us today. We find ourselves discontent with our circumstances, with what we have and how we feel about ourselves. And we find ourselves disconnected from those that matter most to us. If this sounds all too familiar, check out MindfulLab.net and see how the practice of mindfulness can change your life today. Powerful programs are available to help you find clarity, connection, and peace at MindfulLab.net. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to the Vitality Health Show with Stephanie Parrish. If you have a question for Stephanie or her guest, please email contact at myvitalityhealthsolutions.com. Now, back to the Vitality Health Show. Welcome back, friends. Thank you for listening. We are here with the amazing Dr. Michael Collins. He's been telling us the story of his childhood when he was four and a half years old, contacted polio. All the different things that he's been, he had gone through, how he'd lost friends in the hospital with him, his recovery. Now, that's where we're picking up right now, and we're going to just touch base on this. Then we're going to move forward into how and why he got into the field of medicine that he did and what's happened with that. So take it back over. Your mom came to the hospital, and here you are standing. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm sure all of this uh, gave me an insight into medicine, and I Absolutely. know I saw what uh, the doctors and nurses were able to do, and I thought, yeah, I would like to do that later on. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I, uh, I eventually got home and uh, my mother had been trained in all of these techniques. And for years on, every night, after I finished my homework uh, from grammar school, we would have, we would have uh, uh, physical therapy at home, hot olive oil, uh, massaging the muscle groups that were giving me trouble, uh, hot packs like the Sister Kenny treatment, uh, nighttime braces. Uh, and she, was, she gave up her life uh, to do that for me every night, even though I wasn't, I'd rather watch our four inch TV that we had at the time. <laughs> uh, uh, she did it. And uh, as you said, she was a, a saint for doing that. Well, I, I finished grammar school and then went to high school in San Francisco uh, at St. Ignatius High School. And that led me right into the University of San Francisco where I uh, wanted to go into pre-med, which is another interesting little story because my academic advisor, uh, Edmund uh, Smythe at that time, had a, a meeting with me and, and looked at my background and my record, the fact that we did not come from a medical family, had no money, had to you know, have paper routes to uh, make anything. And he, he just said, what else do you want to do? You know, it just wasn't going to work in his eyes. Well, I, I finished uh, with a, a degree in psychology, and then I, uh, uh, I got a master's degree in biology, making up all of my pre-med requisites. And uh, at the same time, I became a respiratory therapist. Uh, and got a job as a respiratory therapist at Mount Zion Hospital in San Francisco. And I'm sure that you can relate to those people that you're working with because you couldn't breathe either. That's right. That's right. That, that, that's exactly the dovetail. Yeah. Uh, how that worked brilliant. out. Brilliant. That's amazing. Uh, I met a person by the name of Dr. Ted Finley. Uh, uh, Ted was the hospital pulmonologist or lung doctor, but he was also still on the staff of the University of New Mexico School of Medicine, which had recently opened. Well, Dr. Finley uh, got me involved in some research and eventually he just sent me down to uh, Albuquerque and I uh, got uh, admission uh, to UNM. And four years later, I was graduated with a a degree, uh, a medical degree. And uh, I was graduated, uh, and I say this humbly, but I was graduated with honors and I was elected to the National Medical Honor Society, what we call AOA Alpha, Omega Alpha. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I got that certificate, the first thing I did was I made a copy of it and I put it in an envelope and I sent it to Father Smythe back at the University of San Francisco. (laughs) Ask you what else you'd want to do because you weren't quite worthy to do what he thought you you wanted to do, right? That's right. (laughs) I thought that was great. So... Uh, I finished my general surgery career there with uh, Dr. Sterling Edwards, uh, who is just an amazing individual, one of the founding fathers of my specialty in the yeah. United States. And you agree with him. How awesome is that? And, and he was very good friends with Dr. Russell Nelson at the mm-hmm. University of Utah. Now, Dr. Nelson at that time uh, was chairman of the Department of uh, Cardiothoracic Surgery. And he called Dr. Nelson and said, hey, look at this guy. I think he would do well in your program. Mm -hmm. And out of respect for um, Dr. Edwards, Dr. Nelson just called me and said, come on up. We'll have an interview and you've got a position. So I did that. And I'll frankly admit, I didn't even know where Utah was at this time, (laughs) you know. Uh, but that wasn't I, on your radar. That's right. <laughs> but I, I got there and I, uh, 
finished his fellowship program, spent two years with Dr. Nelson and his staff. And uh, for those of you out there who, who don't know the, uh, uh, the story there that Dr. Nelson is now the president uh, and of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, yeah. and still working for his fellow man, but only in a different capacity. Exactly. He was an amazing teacher. He was a clinical teacher. Uh, just amazing how your hands worked when he was uh, helping you do something. Just an amazing individual. That just gave me goosebumps because I remember some of the stories you were telling us. Where oh, <laughs> you it, know what I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, you know, I I met uh, well, Shirley Ann and myself met uh, uh, Dr. Nelson and his wife. Uh, or I guess at that time, President Nelson and his wife out at the airport, and we uh, said hello and had a little talk. And he went off, and she, his wife Wendy, asked me, "Well, how how exactly do you know uh, my husband?" I said, "Well, you know, I was uh, I did a fellowship with him, and you know, he taught me everything I know." And she looked at me and she said, well, in that case, you must know an awful lot. <laughs> Isn't that so sweet? And she was exactly, exactly right. So I started practice uh, at LDS Hospital uh, with my partner, uh, Dr. George Robinson. Uh, soon we both joined the teaching staff at the University of Utah. We were pivotal in training residents and uh, fellows in our program. And uh, uh, we were just having fun and doing what we wanted to do in life. Uh, I still had the ravages of polio. After, after a long day in surgery, um, I just uh, felt great when I could come home and uh, do the hot packs and uh, maybe uh, do an Epsom salt uh, tub for uh, a while. And Sister Kenny was right. That helped. That, that just made the day wow. better. Every so, day, no matter how old you were and how long it was, right? Right. Just keep doing that. In the mid-80s, <laughs> mid my one of my colleagues, Dr. Jim Webster, who's another cardiothoracic surgeon, uh, knocked on my door and said he needed help uh, forming a combat support hospital in the Utah Army National Guard and wondered if I would be interested in helping him do that. And I thought, gee, you know, that'd be a, a good community service project. You know? So I, uh, I signed up and we did that. We formed this 400 bed uh, hospital with a 40 bed ICU, totally equipped. And then came uh, an episode called Operation Desert Storm. Yeah. Well, we were one of the first hospitals to be mobilized. We were sent to Saudi Arabia. I was in Riyadh. Uh, and instead of being with my hospital group, uh, General Schwarzkopf wanted me to just stay at an institution called the Riyadh Military Hospital and take care of all of the uh, injured and the allied forces. And then I took care of the uh, medical needs of the POW camps we had there. Um, and because of my background and because of people that were there with me, I was able to do the first uh, open heart surgery ever done in a theater of war. That just gave me goosebumps. I've got goosebumps all over right now. That, uh, a miracle. And that went right uh, very well. And as a matter of fact, uh, the patient was a professor of cardiothoracic surgery at one of the other medical oh. institutions in the United States. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that part. I, I thought that was kind of funny. So after, um, 
after uh, uh, we got our notice to come home, I was faced with the uh, uh, consult on a small three and a half, four year old Bedouin child who had this horrible chest tumor. It's called a yolk sac tumor. It's a very primitive tumor. He was mm-hmm. in between his course of chemotherapy and the doctors say, if we're gonna do anything surgically, we gotta do it now, now that it's, wow. and I said, but we're, we're getting ready to go home. Said, well, so um, even though my family was uh, really put off by this, I elected to stay back and operate on this little guy And I'm glad I did because uh, I had to stay there and take care of him. This is an operation that the area had not seen or or dealt with before. So I actually took care of him. And by the time I did leave, he was starting to move his legs, which his legs hadn't moved either uh, because his tumor was pressing on his spinal cord. Again, you could relate to him. Yep, I could. I could. So uh, I came back after all that was over and I came back to uh, my practice at LDS Hospital um, and started to become more involved with the thoracic surgery part of the practice, Uh, the thoracic oncology dealing with lung cancers, esophageal cancers, uh, chest wall cancers. I did an awful lot of esophageal cancer surgery at LDS Hospital at that time and had excellent results. Uh, my wife, who was a nurse, worked with me at that point, and she actually took care of uh, uh, the post-op care of these patients, you know, getting their diet straightened out and their medicines and things like that. And and she just did a great job in doing that. By three weeks, she'd have a patient eating a, a regular diet just about. Wow. Patients would call the office and they'd say, uh, I'd like to speak to Shirley Ann. I've got a problem. <laughs> well, she's not here yet. The Dr. Collins is here. Would you like to talk to him? And they say, uh, no, that's okay. Uh, call back when Shirley Ann is here. <laughs> <laughs> it's still that way. Everybody wants to talk to Shirley Ann. I know yeah. you're listening, Shirley Ann. <laughs> um, so uh, I got involved with the American College of Surgeons Oncology Group, uh, national office with them, became part of their auditing uh, team uh, to go around to make sure that uh, protocols are being done correctly at hospitals across the country and also in the uh, uh, United Kingdom and uh, Australia is part of the United Kingdom, New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm still a member of that group. That has now blended into what we call the Alliance for Clinical Trials in Oncology. I have held multiple positions, both state and national, with the American College of Surgeons. And then when uh, Intermountain uh, Healthcare built their new hospital here just south of uh, Salt Lake, um, their new medical campus, we all transferred our practices out to there. But I still remained uh, chief of the Division of General Thoracic Surgery Mm -hmm. and started to then build uh, the division there. Uh, I brought on two younger surgeons uh, 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 who are just, excellent at what they do in life. Uh, And among the three of us, we think had a good presence in the field of thoracic surgical oncology. And uh, after I retired, they're still there doing that. So um, so my philosophy uh, through all of this, um, as you know, uh, depends a lot on, on prayer and help 
in doing what I do. Um, uh, I would always ask the good Lord for uh, help and and guiding me through these uh, uh, surgical procedures and through my care of my medical patients. I, I had this little prayer that I say uh, before every surgical procedure. It, it actually starts out with uh, the first line of the prayer of St. Francis, where St. Francis says, make me an instrument of your peace. I think what a powerful thought that is, especially in medicine. You know, if you can, if you can bring peace to someone else's life, uh, you've fulfilled your goals. Uh, If you can bring peace to someone who has a malignant process that will take their life soon, if you can still induce peace in that patient, you've done a great job. Mm -hmm. And and that's what I look to do. So after asking for the peace, I said, uh, uh, please uh, enlighten my mind and give strength to my hands so that I may do your work in taking care of my fellow man. Um, I even had that cut out and pasted on the bulletin board of my operating room at the hospital. Um, can anyone uh, wanted to read goosebumps. it? <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I, I took on the, um, the care of my fellow man as an awesome charge from whatever power gave me that charge. And when my son went to medical school and graduated uh, from Creighton Medical School, mm-hmm. I, I had a, a little talk with him. And I, I said, Sean, I said, for some reason, you and I have been chosen in the universe to take care of our fellow man. Mm-hmm. I don't know why we were picked, but we were. And we have to be faithful to that charge and take it very seriously. And he has, I'm glad he's uh, uh, doing it in his father's footsteps. Um, That's beautiful. Something that I feel, and people that are listening can hear this, is your compassion. And, you know, I we talked about this a little bit before, how we go through those trials in our lives. And you can understand, I mean, you were near to death, you were, you didn't know if you'd walk again or whatever was going through in your, your whole body and your mind and your spirit and your soul. And to know that you were able to be healed because there was hope and faith in that healing. And that's what it's all about. And that's what the show's all about is hope in your healing. And I just so much appreciate you giving that to our listeners. Go ahead. Sorry. That's actually my, uh, my next point. Uh, uh, There are things that I learned through uh, enduring the ravages of polio that I could later incorporate into my practice of medicine as I treated patients. You know, uh, I know pain. I know what it feels like. I know disability. I know what it feels like. And that just draws you closer to your patients. And you can actually sit there and and say, yeah, I know what you're going through. And and knowing what you're going through, I can help you. Um, so that was an important part of my uh, practice. Um, there are two little, two little things that happened recently. One was I got a call from a patient uh, who has my same last name, which is why I remember oh. him. And he's a farmer in Idaho. And uh, 
he, I operated on him 34 years ago. Wow. And for some reason, he was just thinking of me, called me and said, I just want to let you know that I'm still alive and kicking. He says, oh. I'm not kicking as high as I used to, <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but I'm kicking. And I said, well, are, are you still farming? He says, yeah, I'm still farming. And boy, you know, what a, uh, what an honor it was uh, to treat him and see how well, years. Wow. 34 years. I recently received a letter from uh, a young patient, a young male, who had a problem with a, a big cyst in his lung that kept, uh, his lung kept collapsing. So yeah. I treated him surgically, and that's kind of a standard uh, uh, thing we do in our field. But he also had a lot of other problems. Uh, uh, I was on a lot of medications. And while he's recovering, we sorted all those out, got him on the right track. Um, and he recently sent me a letter saying, I just want to let you know, uh, I got so much better. I was able to do a mission for my church oh. uh, and spend two years out in the mission field. And uh, this past week, I've been spending every day at Snowbird skiing my heart out. And I want to let you know, I'm on no medication. I'm breathing fine. I have no shortness of breath. And I just want to thank you for... Uh, that influence you had in my life. Well, you know, that, that makes your heart glad and, and humbles the soul. That and, I was, and if I can interject right there too, how important it is to thank the people in your life that have made a difference, you know, cause you go through and do this every day with so many people and to be able to get these letters of Thanksgiving yeah. is huge. Yeah. Um, I think we're getting uh, close to uh, the end here. So a few things I want to uh, uh, touch on. Uh, my mother, through all this, didn't remarry uh, until she, I was in high school. Uh, and, uh, uh, and then she started to enjoy life. And, and that was great for me to see. Uh, a person came into being by the name of Dr. House. Dr. House was an ENT physician, and he developed an operation for her hearing problem. So she got that done and she came home. And when she told me <laughs> to make my bed and I, uh, I said, I'll make my bed when I'm good and ready. And she says, I heard that. And I said, oh, quick. And I call my brothers and say, watch out. Mom can hear. <laughs> totally um, changed your life when she could hear, right? <laughs> yeah. She uh, unfortunately developed uh, um, ovarian carcinoma and passed away from that in 1984. And since I had seen her within the last week and uh, I made a quick trip out to San Francisco when she was dying and I was able to sign her death certificate. Mm. And some people may consider that to be a bit morbid, but I think, you know, that was my way of saying thank you to her. Wow. Thank you for letting me be able to get into medicine and do this for you. The, my final act in your life is to essentially usher you into eternity. Um, More goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, re I fully realized that I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her intervention and her willingness right. to, uh, uh, to do what she did. The people who know me um, know that I wear a little medal around my neck. It's Michelangelo's Pieta, mm -hmm. which is a, a sculpture of Mary holding the limp body of Christ after he was crucified. Um, I wear that in honor of my mother. Um, 
taken me down from the cross of polio. Wow. And uh, this not only is uh, a religious medal, but one of uh, thank you to her as well as, uh, as I went through life. Um, there, there's some per people that uh, were very significant. They were angels in disguise in, in my life. That first one was Dr. O'Gara, the pediatrician. Um, what, a, what an amazing person knew exactly what I that? had. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, another fellow that I haven't mentioned yet is Dr. Robert Samuelson. Uh, he was an orthopedic surgeon in San Francisco, a young Stanford-trained uh, orthopedic surgeon. And in order to keep me from having a club foot, he had to do multiple surgical procedures on me. Again, uh, on a patient from a welfare family, no reimbursement, and he did it all pro bono. Uh, once I uh, received my medical degree and, and finished uh, my residency, I went back and just knocked on his door and saw his nurse, Helen, who had watched me grow up. And she just gave me a big hug. And he brought me into his office and just said, wow, look at this, you know, uh, look at what we've done together. And I, I just thought that was, uh, that was neat. You know, I don't think it was, I don't think it was happenstance that these, uh, that these people were entered my life. I feel oh, that they were, I feel that they were directed there by some other force and yeah. their goal was to make sure that I was successful in doing what I had to do in life. Mm -hmm. uh, and to them, I'm, I'm uh, uh, really grateful. Uh, Dr. Ted Finley, Dr. Sterling Edwards, and of course, Dr. Russell Nelson, people. I just, I, I have a hard time not calling him Dr. Nelson because that's how, that's how I knew him. And but, it's so uh, funny when we were having conversation, you kept referring to him as Russ and I'm like, <laughs> Yeah, I know. President. I know. I know. <laughs> it was just so tender. <laughs> yeah. He, you know, he is so neat when we see him at, at gatherings uh, for, you know, medical gatherings or LDS hospital or uh, gatherings. He just, uh, yeah, gives you a big hug and wants to know how you're doing and gives my wife a big hug and, you know, just uh, asks her how she's doing. And uh, he's really just a neat guy. He's very, very he's, kind and genuine. He's a people's cleric. Yeah, Let me tell you that. it's so wonderful. Yeah, as are you. You know, you're sitting here talking about all these people, um, Dr. Collins and I. And I know that there's people out there listening. A lot of people that you've probably shared this with. People we're listening that feel the same way about you. And I know you don't like to toot to your own horn. You don't. Let, you're very, very <laughs> genuine and very humble. And I want you to know how much that is appreciated. Because for you to be sitting here with me, I'm feeling very, very humbled to have you on my show oh, and to be you. able to go visit with you and your beautiful wife at your home and just to open your home up and share this incredible story with everybody. And we could go on for hours and hours and hours because you've got stories yeah. galore yeah. that we want to sh you want to share with. But we've only got just a couple minutes. So is there one last thing you'd like to share with our audience that's listening? Um. One thing, as we go through life, uh, there's a need for prayer. And in that need, we ask God to help us in our daily lives. But once we ask God, I think there's another important factor that a lot of us don't realize. Mm -hmm. We must listen. We must listen for the answer. 
And when we feel or realize that answer, we must act on it. So prayer, asking, listening. And then the third component, I think, of uh, prayer is thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks for what you have given me. Amen. Thanks for allowing me to walk. Yeah. Thanks for allowing me to take care of your fellow man. Again, goosebumps all over. That's such a beautiful, beautiful way to end this show. Thank you so oh, thank much. You. Dr. Michael, I just, I, I love you and your wife and so grateful that we've been able to become friends and, and go on this journey together. And, and thank you again for all of your incredible work and for your testimony of Christ and well, for recognizing the experiences that you went through and how they are able to help other people. And that's, that's what you do. You're beautiful. And so is your wife. She's an incredible nurse and just, just wonderful, wonderful people. So thank you so much. I hope all of our listeners were able to take away. I got, I got goosebumps the whole time and got tears going down. It's like, okay, this is just a beautiful show. So thank you so much, Michael. I sure. appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a really safe, happy, and healthy week. We love you all here. Thank you for showing, sharing with us today and with Dr. Michael Collins. Have a great week. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Vitality Health Show. Be sure to tune in next Thursday for another informative show with Stephanie Parrish and leading health and wellness experts. That's Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a wonderful, healthy week. Statements made and information provided on this program are for educational purposes only. They have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, and products discussed on this program are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Vitality Health Show is not responsible for any misunderstandings or misapplication of information presented in this show. 